Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You've heard about it. You've read about it. You've talked about it. And now you found it. This is Alan Smith's Ask the Trucker Live on Blog Talk Radio the largest radio social network in the world. With your hosts, Alan and Donna Smith, focusing on driver health, careers, regulations, and the important issues facing the industry. It's time to shut down that big rig, sit back, and come join the conversation. Ask the Trucker Live begins right now. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, today is March 24th, 2016, and welcome to Ask the Trucker Live on our Thursday evening health show. I'm Donna Smith, and I'm uh, your host tonight for this Thursday evening health show. Uh, my other half, Alan Smith, hosts our Ask the Trucker Live trucking shows on Saturdays, which pretty much covers all the other areas uh, in the trucking industry. But tonight's show is a health show, and it is uh, driver fatigue, what you need to know about FMCSA rulemaking for sleep apnea. And uh, we're going to try to make sense out of this topic, which seems to have a lot of people confused, including a lot of people in the, the trucking industry, not just drivers, but carriers. And, and there's, there's just a lot of confusion about it because it's not very well defined and, and Anyway, obstructive sleep apnea um, is just a topic that's been discussed for years, and and it is a a real illness. So uh, for many years now, OSA has been proven to be this serious type of uh, disease, not just among truckers, but for an entire population. It's said to afflict, uh, I think it's like 25 million adults in the United States. Um, OSA, which is obstructive uh, sleep apnea, if left untreated, can cause uh, many other serious and even fatal uh, diseases, which which we're going to talk a little bit about tonight with our guest. Uh, Panels of medical experts by the Federal Motor Carry Safety Administration, uh, they've convened and and have recommended comprehensive sleep uh, apnea screening for commercial drivers. However, um, rather than instituting mandatory screening, current federal regulations rely mainly on drivers to self-report their sleep apnea symptoms uh, during their biennial medical examination, uh, which, as everyone knows, determines their fitness for duty. Uh, but on March 8, 2016, a huge step was taken as the FMCSA and the Federal Railroad Administration 
issued a, a joint advance notice of propo- proposed rulemaking as both agencies consider whether to propose specific requirements for screening, um, evaluating and treating rail workers and commercial motor vehicle drivers for obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, The FMCSA and FRA are seeking public input uh, for this advance notice during the next 90 days uh, for the impacts of screening, evaluating, and treating the rail workers. Um, and commercial motor vehicle uh, drivers. So, tonight we're going to try to make sense out of it all with our very special guest, Elaine Papp of healthandsafetyworks.net. And I'm so glad she's with me tonight. Elaine is an expert in in (laughs) in the area of regulations. As she was the FMCSA's uh, medical chief for many years, Elaine's a board-certified occupational health nurse, over 35 years' experience in uh, occupational and transportation health. She's worked for the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, uh, the FMCSA, World Health Organization, and the International Council of Nursing, as well as private industry and a variety of healthcare institutions. So tonight uh, we hope to confront much of the confusion regarding sleep apnea with our guest and address many of the questions and, and even fears that some may have as they listen tonight. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but if you'd like to be a part of this show, um, you call in, in the number here, uh, 347-826-9170, and then press 1 on your keypad, and that lets us know that you want to be part of the conversation. So if you're listening uh, online uh, and you want to call in, just dial 347-826-9170, and I see... Uh, Elaine, we're packed tonight, so holy cow, I'm rolling all the way down. So if all you guys uh, listening on the lines that I can see, I can't see the Internet people, but I can see those on the line, you have to click one on your keypad, and uh, and we'll come back to you. So uh, stay tuned. I'm going to take a quick break before we bring uh, Elaine on, and uh, we'll get right to it. Okay, be right back. You're listening to Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith on Blog Talk Radio. Don't go anywhere. Alan and Donna will be right back. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here. Have you been driving a big rig for a while now and considering starting your own business as an owner-operator? Well, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing offers the best lease purchase plan in the industry. With a small down payment and monthly payments around $1,000 or less, you make the monthly payment, and when the final payment is made, they hand over the title. It really is that simple. There is no big balloon payment at the end, and secondly, the truck is yours, not a lease plan under one truck and company. So if becoming an owner-operator is your goal, do it the right way. Do it the best way. Contact Lone Mountain Truck Leasing on the web at LoneMountainTruck.com or give them a call toll-free at 866-512-5685. That's LoneMountainTruck.com.
This is Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith. To be a part of the program, call in now at 347-826-9170. Skype users can call in by clicking on the Skype button on our show page. To be a sponsor of the show, email Donna at info at askthetrucker.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, welcome back, everyone. You're listening tonight to Driver Fatigue, what you need to know about FMCSA rulemaking for sleep apnea. I'm your host tonight, Donna Smith, and I'm thrilled to introduce to you Elaine Papp of healthandsafetyworks.net. I think of Elaine as a dear friend and someone who has a a tremendous dedication and concern for safety and health um, within the general industry including for the trucking industry and the professional drivers. So uh, without any more delay, I'd like to bring Elaine Papp on of Health and Safety Works. Um, how you doing, Elaine? Uh, I got your, I have, I think I have your line open. Yeah, you're open. How okay, you doing yes, tonight? I'm fine. I'm really happy to be on the radio again with you, Donna. I know, I know. And and we've, we've been talking uh, the last couple of days a lot about this, uh, this topic with the um, advance notice proposed rulemaking for sleep apnea, and um, I mean, I, I don't know where should we start. Should we just um, start with the rule itself, the purpose of it? Um, where are we now with sleep apnea? I'm I'm going to kind of let you uh, roll a little bit with the opening of of where you want to uh, start. But I think I'll start a little bit with the history. Okay, um, that sounds good. Yeah, in you know, obstructive sleep apnea has always been part of the regulations of FMCSA. Um, the respiratory regulation, which is 49 CFR 391.41B5, says that a driver cannot operate a commercial motor vehicle unless he is free of respiratory conditions that would adversely impact his ability to operate a commercial motor vehicle. Now, that's not the And that's the under the qualifications, point. right? Yeah, those are the physical qualifications. It's under physical qualifications in the Federal Register. It's one of the regulations, and it's the respiratory regulation. So if you have a respiratory condition that would interfere with your being able to safely operate a commercial motor vehicle, you're not allowed to drive unless that condition has been treated. Well, okay. in 2000... The FMCSA updated their advisory criteria, which is the only document that they have that is considered guidance. And the advisory criteria written in the year 2000 said that obstructive sleep apnea is considered to be one of the respiratory conditions that would preclude a driver from operating a commercial motor vehicle unless treated properly. And in that advisory criteria, and I'm not using the exact words, I'm not quoting, but in the advisory criteria it says that if a medical examiner believes that someone might have obstructive sleep apnea, they have to send them to a specialist, they have to refer them to a specialist for appropriate diagnosis and treatment. So they have to do that as part of the advisory criteria since 2000, since the year 2000. Now, over the years, obstructive sleep apnea just nationwide 
not related necessarily to transportation, has become a more um, serious consideration among the diseases. They've learned a lot more about it as they've studied it and so forth, and they realize that it causes a lot of really serious problems. I believe it was the year 2008 in December that Johns Hopkins did a huge study on, I think it was like 40,000 people, to determine who had and if they did have obstructive sleep apnea. And what they found was that if you had undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea that was untreated, you had a 40% higher chance of getting a stroke, having a stroke. Right. So obstructive sleep apnea is a really serious medical condition, and the FMCSA has been looking into it and certainly has had a regulation on the books for a long time. And for 16 years, there's been a guidance document that says if you have obstructive sleep apnea, if a medical examiner thinks you have it, they need to send you to a specialist. Now, none of these regulations or advisory criteria had any specific details. It did not talk about BMI, did not talk about neck circumference or anything. But as the medical community became more and more familiar with obstructive sleep apnea, they started looking at what would be some risk factors for it, what would, what would be something that would tell a doctor maybe this person has this disease and needs further testing. And what they've learned is that a BMI, body mass index, of 35, a neck circumference, of 17 or above, snoring, having a jaw that is more receded, aging, you know, being older, all of these are factors that are considered risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea. So if you have a lot of these risk factors, your doctor is likely to say, hmm, maybe we better test you for obstructive sleep apnea. Well, as they um, began to look into this more at FMCSA, they did a lot of studies. And I started with FMCSA in the year 2008, and just prior to my stu- coming there, the Medical Review Board had done a big study on obstructive sleep apnea. That was the first time that FMCSA had a formal study. And they did what they call an evidence report, And they do evidence reports on everything that they're going to think about making a rule. And what an evidence report is, is they go out and they look at all the scientific studies, all the literature that has been published on the topic, and they determine uh, whether or not there is evidence that this is a problem for truckers. So with their evidence reports, they gather everything that they can that's been studied. They look at other countries and what's been studied in Canada and what's been studied in England and countries that are similar to ours, and they look at all of this information, and they bring that to the Medical Review Board. They also have a medical expert panel, which is made up of people who specialize in whatever the topic is. In this case, it would be sleep medicine specialists who look at all of the latest standards of practice, and they write a report, and that report goes to the Medical Review Board. So all of this happened in 2008, 
And then the agency started having conferences and people started talking about it. It became very controversial. So again, in 2011, they repeated the same procedure. They updated the evidence report. They had another expert panel meet about it. They had the Mix Act this time, which is the Motor Carrier Safety Advisory Committee, get together with the Medical Review Board and discuss these evidence reports and the findings and come up with some recommendations. And here's where one of the confusion points is. The Medical Review Board and the Mix Act are what are called advisory committees. They advise agency. So they make recommendations to the agency. And then the agency decides whether or not to take the recommendations and turn them into guidance documents or rules. So the MIXAC and the MRB said, okay, if you have a BMI of 35, you should be sent for further evaluation. They talked about neck circumference. So this was the first time that they started putting, like, details and numbers and so forth on when people should be considered at risk of obstructive sleep apnea. That doesn't mean you have it. It means you're at risk and you need to have a study done to see if you have it. And, of course, the studies are sleep studies. So... People got confused when they saw that the recommendations from the Medical Review Board and the MIXAC were on the Internet. They said, oh, the agency has written guidance, and this is what the agency is recommending. And that was not true. Training organizations that were training medical examiners said, oh, this is what's required. This is rule. And they were not correct. So medical examiners looked and said, oh, this is rule, this is required, and they were not correct. So the and agency does not have guidance. I'm sorry, what? Um, I was just going to say, ahead. and these trainers, these trainers aren't from the FMCSA. These are third-party trainers. Right, right. When the agency okay. wrote the National Registry uh, Rule for Certified Medical Examiners, they decided to have training organizations out in the community do the training of the medical examiners and not do it themselves. And then when they wrote the rule for the National Registry, nobody commented and said, well, FMCSA, you should do it yourself. Um, So FMCSA let the training organizations do it, and any training organization can train medical examiners. They don't have um, any vetting process. Um, There is there's certain core curriculum elements that they have to meet, um, but those core curriculum elements don't talk about a BMI of 35 or an X circumference of 17 or any of that. It just says you have to, you know, teach about obstructive sleep apnea. So they, um, all of these numbers and so forth were never put into rule by the FMCSA. However which is another confusing point, is that medical examiners are expected to use their education, the results of their physical exam, and the current standards of 
practice of medical practice to make their decisions about things. The current standards of medical practice say if you have a BMI of this, if you have a neck circumference of that, if you're snoring, these are risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea, and your patient should be evaluated. Now, these medical standards are for all doctors across the nation. They're not just for medical examiners. So medical examiners are allowed by FMCSA to use their own medical knowledge, guidance, standards of practice, the kinds of things that they learn, and apply them to the physical exam that they do. So a medical examiner can send a driver for a sleep study, but it's not required by FMCSA. FMCSA says if you think that somebody has obstructive sleep apnea, you have to send them for further evaluation and treatment. They don't say you have to send them for an overnight sleep study. They don't say if the BMI is 35, you have to send somebody. But, but these the are what some of those trainers were telling them, correct? Yes. the trainers. Some of the trainers were passing misinformation. Misinformation was being passed around. I mean, you know that game of gossip where you whisper in people's ears, right. the little game kids play. And, you know, by the time it comes out the other side, it's way different. So finally, in January of this year, January of this year? Um, no, it was January, I think they said 2000, January 12, 2016 or 15. I'm not sure exactly when. FMCSA wrote a bulletin to the medical examiners telling them everything I've just told you. We don't have specific guidelines. We do have advisory criteria that says if you, a medical examiner, think somebody might have obstructive sleep apnea, you must send them for further evaluation and treatment didn't say what kind of treatment, doesn't say what kind of evaluation. So the overnight sleep studies were really expensive. And medical technology changes very quickly, so now they have home studies. Right, that you just right. we're working with a company right now that um, is very good with the home study, that's CPAP America. Okay, I, yeah, I and, and the home studies are easier to, I just had a home study. I just did a home study two months ago. And I do mm-hmm. have obstructive sleep apnea. I have very mild obstructive sleep apnea. And my private care doctor has decided not yet to treat it because it's um, so mild. It doesn't, you know, it mm-hmm. depends on mm-hmm. how many episodes of stopping breathing you have during the night as to whether it needs to be treated or not. So, all right, so I talked for a long time, but that's sort of, kind of a conglomeration of the history and what really exists and what doesn't exist. Kind of I summarize. have a question for you. Okay, yeah. I have an answer. I, okay. Um, getting back to the medical examiner, and I know they're under, um, you know, a lot of stress because there's all kinds of mixed information. And, you know, we've had Dr. Rosarian on um, a few times on the show here. And uh, I kind of wish he'd call in tonight, but the question I want to ask is, so if the ME says, uh, you know, I think, you know, you you need some more testing, does he, can he make the choice to have them do a home study or go to the test right then and there? Um, uh, Does he have to send them to a specialist? Can he handle it himself? 
you know, where where do you well, draw the line? Most medical examiners don't handle it themselves because okay. they're a medical examiner and they're not the treating clinician. So normally right. what they do is they will, ref- you know, they're not going, it's just not their job to do further diagnosis and treatment. They'll send you, okay. say, go to your private physician and get this done or go here and get this done or go there and get this done. Um, but the medical examiner should not, and this ha- I heard this so many times when I was at FMCSA, I can't tell you how many times I, people called me and said that their medical examiner had started a sleep lab and said that the person had to use their sleep lab. You oh know, they goodness. had to go say, I'm Dr. John Smith, and you have to go to Mr. Dr. John Smith's sleep lab or he wouldn't accept the results from anybody else. So the the medical examiner was sort of holding the trucker hostage, saying, I'm not going to accept anybody else except mine, and if you want to get your certificate, you have to go to my sleep study. So he's, like, making money by referring you to his, and that is just so unethical. It is no, 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 no. You cannot do that. I actually probably, if I were a trucker and that happened, I would would report the physician to the medical board on ethics charges because that physician should not have a license to practice. I mean, he can't say, I'm only going to accept the results from my lab and you have to go to my lab and you have to pay $2,000 to get a study at my lab and if you go anywhere else, I'm not accepting the results. No, 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 no. That's really unethical. So, um, so what happens? What happens if he thinks uh, or she thinks that the driver has it, and they feel strongly? You know, maybe it meets a lot of criteria that, you know, the checklist and all like that. Um, can the ME still give the driver his uh, certificate, uh, or yeah, is it I would just they need to de- they would have to determine how bad the sleep apnea was. Um, you know, or how how much they think the problem is. If they think that the driver has obstructive sleep apnea, I mean, it, they have to use, they have to be practical. You mm-hmm. can't, you know, put somebody off, off the road and if, impact their right. uh, livelihood. Um, maybe they can't get um, a study done for a month because they're all booked up or something. You know. Right. Um, right. That's what I mean. This is one of the fears drivers have of what, you know, why why they don't want to go. And, and when they're asked questions, they, you know, they might not tell the truth because they're afraid they're going to be taken off the road. They won't get their medical card. So, right. you know, that's but why the I'm home asking. Study, I had a home study done. My doctor saw me and in two or three days, the lab called me and said, we're going to send out a kit. What address do we send it to? Blah, 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 blah. And then they gave me an explanation of what they had to do. I got the kit the next day. You get When you get the kit, the home study, you call them and you tell them you've gotten it, and then they go over the instructions with you, and you do everything yourself, and then you go to sleep with this little stuff on you, and you wake up, and it records, and you call them when you wake up and say, I've done the study, I'm finished. And they say, okay, the results have come in. It was a good study. Um, you can send back the stuff now. Okay. I mean, but when just, you go to that, hmm? when you go with that ME though, because I, I, I know everybody's waiting to hear this, 
and they think you have it, and they're going to recommend you go to a specialist, will you get at least a temporary card for so many months? I can't um, say for sure anything okay. because there's no okay. there's no standards of it. You know, it depends on what that ME thinks. If you if you're falling asleep in his waiting room mm-hmm. while you're waiting for him to to see you, and then you have a BMI of 45, which mm-hmm. some people do have, and you have a next circumference of 22, and you're ha- huffing and puffing as you're walking across the room to go sit on the uh, cot, he right. may take you off the road right then. Because you okay. may be seriously ill. Okay. Um, I can't, you know, so I, without, it's not a standardized thing. It depends on the driver, um, what he looks like, what his condition is, and so forth. But, you know, the one thing I wanted to mention that I just it was just thinking about as we were talking, this is not any different than the way they deal with any other medical condition. If you look at any of the physical qualification standards, they're all written very broadly. The cardiovascular one says you cannot have a cardiovascular condition that interferes with your ability to safely operate a commercial motor vehicle in interstate commerce. And then they say in the advisory criteria, cardiovascular conditions that might interfere uh, include acute myocardial infarction, uh, cerebral vascular accident. They go through all of the different things, but they just mention the diseases. So then when you go to the medical examiner, he evaluates your cardiac condition. It's the same way for almost all of the physical qualification regulations. There are only four that have any specifics in them. One is you can't drive if you're on insulin. That's very specific. Number two is you have to have a vision of such and such. Number three, you have to hear blah, blah, blah. And then number four, you can't drive if you have epilepsy. So So there are only four that are very specific. The rest are very broadly written. And they're written that way for a reason. You know, it takes a long, long time to write a regulation, and then once it's written and on the books, it stays there for forever. They can't put things in there that are going to change rapidly. Like, for example, I wrote a regulation that had to do with how you need to communicate with me. If I said, well, you have to use a rotary dial telephone, we'd be up a creek today because nobody has rotary dial telephones anymore. Right. So with medical technology, it changes so rapidly. You know, a couple of years ago, they only had overnight sleep studies. They didn't have home studies. And it just changes so rapidly, you don't want the agency to put anything really specific in the rule. You want it to be written broadly, and then you want the guidance that can change more readily to reflect kind of the what's happening in the times now. Sure, sure. And even the guidance. Um Changes. Sure. Because guidance has to be published in the Federal Register for public comment before it becomes guidance, too. So n- the agencies are not allowed, they're just not a- permitted um, 
to write anything willy-nilly and just submit it and make you um, have to follow it. All the regulations and all the guidance that any regulatory agency from OSHA to FMCSA has to do, they have to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. And the Administrative Procedures Act requires them to write a notice of proposed rulemaking, to publish it, to accept public comments, to look at those public comments, make a decision about whether they're going to agree or disagree with the public comments. Then when they write the final rule, they have to address every comment that came in. We decided not to do this because of this. We decided to follow what they said because of that. And they change the rule based on the public comment. They do the same thing with guidance. So they can't they just not can't arbitrarily do a rule or a guidance with people don't understand that. And mm-hmm. so when these recommendations came out from MRB and the MIXAC, everybody thought FMCSA was requiring this and everybody went nuts in all sorts of different sure. directions. I remember. I remember that. It was it it's was still really going. something else. Um, yeah. And this is even an advance notice of proposed rulemaking. So this is even, um, you know, not a notice of proposed rulemaking, but an advanced one. So what is the difference between an advance notice and a regular notice of proposed rulemaking? Well, the advance notice of proposed rulemaking is optional. It's not required. Um, okay. That's part one. Number two Agencies usually use advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, the nickname is ANPRM, when they want to make sure they're gathering more information. When they have a lot of questions, they want the public to weigh in on. So the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking for obstructive sleep apnea is called Evaluation of Safety-Sensitive Personnel and Transportation, or something like that, Um, and what it poses, uh, it's evaluation of safety-sensitive personnel for moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea. And it, the ANPRM, what they do is they present some information about what is obstructive sleep apnea. And then they talk about what the agency has done thus far in its research and so forth, and they give sort of the history that I just gave you. And then... They pose, in this ANPRM, they're posing 20 questions. They want information from the public on 20 questions. And so once they get that And these 20 questions, these 20 questions are all posted on that link, correct? Yes. They're all posted okay. in have- the ANPRM. Okay, because we posted all these links. They're on the show page, everybody, right on the Blog Talk Radio show page. If you go under the comments, there's a bunch of links there, and you can you can actually click on everything that Elaine is talking about tonight. And when you comment, I mean, it's tw- I believe it's 24 pages, isn't it, um, Elaine? Uh, I think so. Notice? Not sh- yeah. yeah, something like that. But a lot of but, it is you know, how to respond, you know, how to submit a comment and so forth. And it's also Federal Rail because they're doing it together. Federal Rail Administration and Federal Motor Carrier Administration are jointly publishing this evaluation questionnaire, ANPRM. 
Okay. You so know, um, before just... we... Go ahead. I was going to say, do you want me to read a couple of the questions? Sure, go ahead. Well, they, first of all, they fall into about five categories. They talk about the problem of, F, of obstructive sleep apnea, and they ask questions about what's the prevalent, uh, prevalence of it in the adult population, and how does it vary by age? Is it, is it more prevalent in older or younger adults? Uh, what's the prevalence of moderate to severe among safety-sensitive transportation physicians? And does it differ then among the general public? Is there information studies available for estimating future consequences resulting from individuals with OSA? Uh, does any organization track the number of historical motor carrier or train accidents? Um, which categories of transportation workers should be considered to undergo screening? Um, then they talk about cost and benefits. What are the potential costs of the regulatory action? What's the potential improved health outcome? What costs would be imposed on transportation workers? Are there any private or government sources for financial assistance? So there's a whole lot of cost-benefit questions. Then they talk about screening procedures, what medical guidelines, um, other than what the FAA is using, are suitable, what are the safety performance histories of transportation workers, when and how frequently should they be screened for OSA, on and on. And then they talk about the medical professional's qualifications. Should all medical examiners be allowed to do this? Who should be allowed to do the screenings? that type of thing, and then a treatment effectiveness. So those are the categories, treatment effectiveness, medical personnel qualifications and restrictions, screening procedures and diagnosis, cost, benefits, and the problem of OSA. So those are the questions. The ANPRM does not issue any requirements or mandates. It's asking questions to gather information. And it's quite possible that the agencies will gather information and they will determine that they couldn't possibly do a rule on this and not do one. Wow. The okay. government requires an economic burden analysis. And the economic burden of a regulation cannot exceed a certain number, and I don't know what that is right now. In, they, won't, they won't issue a regulation if it's too costly. And was, does that mean too costly for the driver or the company? No, it means both? it means it doesn't mean it means for the whole ball of wax for everybody. So if the burden, if they look at it and they say, okay, you have four million drivers, and we expect that two thirds of them would fall into the category of needing needing to have an obstructive sleep apnea study, and say the study costs a thousand dollars, so Let's do just half because it's easier to do the math. Two million drivers at a cost of $1,000 each. And then you have to figure in the cost of a CPAP for, say, half of those. You start getting the numbers up. And you start getting into the billions of dollars that this would cost the nation. They won't do a regulation on that. They don't look at the individual driver and the individual company or the individual medical examiner. They look at how much is this going to cost the nation. 
if it's going to cost $2 billion, we're not going to do this regulation. It's too costly. The burden, the economic but, burden on the public is too costly. So it could be very well be that when they get these cost numbers, it's going to be too expensive for them to do a regulation. Does that make so sense? Then how they, well, it does, but in, it doesn't in a way because if uh, all the studies are saying how unsafe, uh, you know, things are, and then yeah, it but says, always you can never get down to a zero safety. And mm-hmm. there's always, always, always the trade-off of the cost versus safety. Okay. Always. And so if it gets the way too costly, cost-benefit, it's their cost-benefit analysis. You know, the safety um, is the benefit and the cost. So they do this cost-benefit analysis, and if it's out of, way out of whack, they won't do a rulemaking. So they're right now they do the ANPRM. Then the second thing, after they gather all this information, if they decide they're going to do a regulation, then they will write a notice of proposed rulemaking. And the notice of proposed rulemaking will talk about everything they've researched, everything they've done. It's what they call the preamble. And then it will include all the provisions that they intend to put into a final rule. And if they say the sky is green and then nobody makes any public comment that says, no, you're wrong, the sky is blue, not green, the agency itself cannot change what it put into the notice of proposed rulemaking unless there's been a comment made. So the agency might have to do a regulation that says the sky is green. Now, the agency can, if they pick up their mistake, reissue a notice of proposed rulemaking and say, oops, we made a mistake, the sky should be blue and not green. But if they, if nobody comments on it and the agency doesn't pick up its mistake, then it'll go into a rule because the agency cannot do bait and switch. So that's why it is so, so important for people to read these regulations and to comment on the regulations and to have their voice be a part of what's going on because otherwise things don't change. They go with whatever that was written because they can't, they're not allowed to change it because of the Administrative Procedures Act. Anyhow, I've said so much in such a long, short period of time. I'm sure there must be um, some questions or clarifications. Yeah, and I want to get back to it. I mean, one of the questions I want to ask you is, is it is it conceivable that it would be required that every single person have... No, it's not required okay. that every single person... You base it on risk factors for medical conditions. Okay, but I mean, is it feasible that they could say, okay, everybody has to have it done? Probably no. It's too expensive. Okay. Okay, because that's one of the, the would things you? that a lot of drivers are angry about, that, oh, they're they're taking out um, heavy people, and there's a lot of skinny people that have sleep apnea, and they're slipping through the cracks, and, you know. Well, I, that you know, the, you have these curves, I don't, you know, where you have the chances and likelihoods. That there's not a lot of people who have, who are thin and have, 
obstructive sleep apnea, but there are a lot of people who are heavy and have obstructive sleep apnea. It's the risk factors. Uh, the chance of you having obstructive sleep apnea, there are a couple of studies that have been done. If you have a BMI of 35 or greater, the chance is like in the 90 percentile. Um, but that also depends on age and whether it's, um, and, and it's a mechanical problem. That's the other thing that people are not considering. Um, it has to do with the weight on your chest. The whole thing with obstructive sleep apnea is exactly what it says, obstructive. The airway closes because of an obstruction. So when you're young, you have a really strong muscle tone in your neck muscles. So when you sleep, your muscle tone keeps the airway open. When you're older, that muscle tone kind of starts to lax and you get saggy in those muscles. And as you're sleeping, those muscles will maybe collapse and will close the airway. And then you don't get oxygen to your brain or to other parts of your body. And then your brain says, oh, my God, I have way too much carbon dioxide in my system. I need to breathe. And it will wake you up, what they call micro-wakes. It will wake you up and only breathe. And then you'll go back to sleep. And then it will wake you up and make you breathe again. And it's called Apnea hypoxic index, A-H-I. And depending on how many of those you have per minute or per hour depends on what grade of mild, moderate, severe obstructive sleep apnea. And depending on how many of those you have per day means you're not getting enough oxygen to your heart, you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain, and you're not getting sleep because you keep waking up, and so you're not getting into your REM sleep that you need and so forth. So you'll begin to develop hypertension, cardiac disease, possible strokes. As I said, 40% of untreated obstructive sleep apnea in a huge study showed they had strokes as a result of having Mm. obstructive sleep apnea. So if you're lying down on your back and you're really overweight, that's why the neck circumference. There's pressure on your chest. There's pressure on your neck. If you're over 50, your muscles are not as strong. If you've been drinking alcohol, you'll have much less tone in your muscles. And you know whether you have some type of obstruction by whether you snore or not because the noise of the air coming out is the air pushing against an obstruction. You know, air going in and out, if there's no obstruction, you don't hear anything. But if there's an obstruction, you're going to, the air is going to have to push harder and you're going to hear a noise as the air is pushing harder. Sure. And sure. I, I know, you, I, I used to hear my dad do it all the time. Do you want me to snore for you? Yeah, dad. <laughs> So here's what what happens. You go, so you start 
getting louder and louder and louder until you go. Right. And then. Right. Yeah. And then people start to gasp because they wake up and they start to gasp. So that's the apneic part. And I, I know people have heard people do that. I heard my dad do that all the time. So, you know, everybody is getting all upset by they're making me do this. This costs a lot of money. They're making me do this. But if you don't get tested and you have it, you've got some pretty serious consequences coming down the line. And if you snore like that, if you're overweight, if you have a big neck circumference, your chance of having it is great. The skinny people, they may have it, but they're at the low end of the curve. There are not all that many of them that have it. And people like to use that a lot to say, well, I'm not the only one. They're after the fat people, but they're really not. It's a risk factor. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just like saying that if you're African-American, you have a risk of, of sickle cell anemia. It's just a fact. Right, so, right. Yeah, and, and it, people need to start taking it seriously. The cost has come way down. Um, right. I know there are some other issues that have come up that I heard about a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And we used to get 2,000 calls a month in my office and about the same number of emails. Um, so we've heard a lot of these problems over and over again. And the one is health insurance. If you go to your personal physician and he doesn't want to test you for obstructive sleep apnea, you can't get your health insurance to pay for it if you have health insurance. A medical examiner saying you need this will not make your health insurance pay for it. Right. So you need if to go to a physician that is going to agree to do the testing for it. Yeah, Here that's what that's what happened to Alan, his regular doctor. Um, he just happened to go in and say he was tired, you know. Gee, I feel tired. <laughs> Before you know it, he's got him on a sleep apnea test. So um, anyway, um, what I want to do is, um, b- before we go on, I've had some people hanging on a long time here. Um, are you ready for questions, Elaine? Sure. Okay. I've said an awful lot in a short period of time, so. You did. Hope you have. Uh, anybody any more than all they were already. Confused. No, I think it's ex- I think it's explained quite a bit, but we're going to get into it further when we get back. But um, let let's get a caller here. Um, here's area code three three seven. You've been hanging on, I believe, the longest. Uh, who do we have here? Are you talking to me? Yes, I am. Are you area code three three seven? I am area code three three seven. I have a couple of comments about the uh, situation. I, I honestly believe that a lot of the issues associated with sleep apnea comes from the medical community in the fact that people have tried to make the trucking industry into a cash cow for the medical community instead of practicing good medicine and teaching people well what they need to do. And that's where a lot of our issues are coming from as opposed to just the sleep apnea itself. 
Okay, so are you like saying then that you don't think that sleep apnea is um, is really uh, a significant no. risk? For- no, 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 I'm not saying that at all. What I'm okay. saying is, is that the medical community has, instead of just simply practicing good medicine and let the dollars fall where they may, every time a guy sneezed twice, he had sleep apnea and was in a sleep bed, uh, sleep um, lab uh, sponsored by the guy that sent him there, as uh, Miss Pap uh, brought to our attention earlier. And so what I'm saying is, if they would have practiced good medicine and and instructed their clients well, we would have had a lot less problems with the sleep apnea uh, environment. You know, we, we've got, uh, I deal with people that have sleep apnea from time to time, and when we've got a guy that's, that's on sleep, at, that's on CPAP, got an AHI of four and very little desaturation, uh, he doesn't have any business being on a, on a CPAP machine. I'm not a medical guy, but I know that. And uh, he doesn't feel any different, et cetera, et cetera. And so you get a lot of bad uh, publicity because people that shouldn't have been on sleep at, on CPAP are, and those that, uh, and then and then those people that need to be on sleep apnea, they know what all the right answers are, and they walk into the doctor and they lie through their teeth, and they don't get tested. And we've got a we got a double problem. It's yeah, a I, vicious circle. Can I comment? <clears throat> yes. I totally agree with you, but I would not put everybody in the same basket. I believe very, very strongly, because I've dealt with it, that there are very bad doctors out there who don't practice medicine but as you say want to, to do cash cow stuff, but there are also some very good medical examiners and doctors out there. I dealt, we dealt with medical examiners. I mean, when I, just before I left, the year before I left FMCSA, I think we had about four or five cases where we brought charges of fraud against medical examiners and had them, um, you know, I think one guy actually went to jail, I, you know, a whole bunch of different kinds of things. There were lots of investigations going on with these people who were one guy was pretending to be a medical examiner when he didn't have a medical license. <laughs> um, another guy was saying that he had his staff signing the physical exams when he was out in the Caribbean, um, wasn't even in his office, and the staff would do the exams and sign off his name. Uh, just huge number of really bad things. And I, I know that I got lots of calls about medical examiners doing their own sleep labs. You know, I'm starting a sleep lab. I'm going to send everybody who comes into my office to the sleep lab. But that's some of the people, but not all of them. I don't think it's the whole medical uh, community. I think there are no, a lot of what about the doctors who are picking up I, serious medical problems. I, I, did, I did not intend to include everyone. I, I was just uh, including the fact that we've, we we're we're seeing a lot of people that you know the are being treated that sh- maybe shouldn't have been treated mm-hmm. uh i am a, i am a cpap patient uh and there was not 
and I was fortunate. I decided myself that I was going to be treated, and so therefore when I was given a CPAP machine, it wasn't a question of was I going to use it or not. I was going to figure out how to use it, and uh, it, it just changes the whole the whole dynamics of the treatment process. Now, do you feel better now that you're on CPAP? Oh, yeah. I, I would... Uh, I, I was so bad that if I hadn't been treated, I would be dead. Yeah. Wow. Caller, what's your name and what business are you in? I am a commercial truck driver. Oh, okay. And, I mean, you have your own fleet? Nope. Okay. No, I don't. Okay. No, I, no, I, I The reason I asked is it sounded like you had a few people. You know that we're having this problem, and I thought you know you you had some drivers under you, and and you were yeah. concerned. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, if you know of people, if you know how much it costs, uh, if you know there are situations where these, you know, you can write to the uh, docket and you can submit comments that say I have concern about obstructive sleep apnea being used as a way for medical examiners to make additional money by sending everybody and da 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 and I know of this situation and this situation, and, and to say, tell some stories um, and send that in so that they know, and that, that goes into their, um, you know, sort of bucket when they're looking at all this information that's coming in. It may not be specific to one of their questions, but it may be some, I think they need to have some stories, some anecdotes that they are included in there. Our caller brought up a good point, too, about uh, having, like, even if someone is very, very low, um, do you think there should be a threshold uh, of how many episodes per evening or per hour before someone has to medical practice. I just told you I had a study done, and my doctor said, yes, you have sleep apnea, but you don't have enough episodes per hour to require treatment. So okay, but standard. I need it in the rule. No, it should not be in the rule. I, I am very, very opposed to putting details in rules because okay. by putting a detail in the rule, you then lock people into something that may change down the road, and they're stuck with it forever. So I don't think but, there should be very specific things. I think you can put those things in guidance. I think the rules. Okay, should but be they very don't broad. really have a guidance right now, right? No, but they can't have a guidance because of what Congress wrote. I mean, they would see. This is the other problem. People went to Congress, and Congress wrote that rule, that law that said you can't do guidance until you have a rule. Well, we really did have a rule. We had a rule that said you, if you have a respiratory <laughs> condition. But now that Congress has said that and the president signed it and it's a law, now FMCSA cannot issue any guidance. They were getting ready to issue guidance, which would have given everybody an opportunity to comment on the guidance. They would have then had standardized guidance, and we wouldn't have all this mess. But people went to Congress ahead of time and not understanding the whole thing, and Congress came down with that law. And so now they have to go through this whole nine yards gathering information and writing a rule, and then after the rule they can write guidance. Um, we already had okay, a rule. So, we can it, so that threshold could actually be in the guidance. Right. Okay. 
And I, you know, he brought up a, um, our caller brought up, a, 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 you know, interesting. Uh, but you know, I think the carriers also uh, could be responsible for that um, that level of exploiting or abuse that he was talking about. You know, making them go to their sleep study people. Well, Have you heard about this? Yes, um, but the carriers are in a kind of a bit of a different place. Um, okay. FMCSA's regulation allows the carriers to be stricter than the FMCSA rules. So a carrier can have a stricter rule than the FMCSA. Um, and they can say, we're going to send you to our medical doctor. You have to go to our medical doctor, and that's a condition of employment. And they send everybody to their medical doctor. Um, so I don't know that that's the same as having a doctor send somebody to a sleep lab. I think mm-hmm. if there are questions about it, um, if a if a driver has a particular issue that has come up with their carrier, it might behoove the driver, if he's real serious about the problem, to go to a labor lawyer and talk to the labor attorney about whether or not this is all right for the employer to do or not. Okay. Okay. Does that answer your question, caller? I'm sorry. I hate to call you caller. Um, what's your name? My name's Gary. Oh, Gary. Hi, Gary. Thanks for, for calling. Did Elaine answer your question, and did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? No. I. The whole thing that I am always concerned about is I I get real tired of regulation that defeats the purpose for which the regulation was written. And I alluded to it earlier in the fact that, you know, uh, what they're doing, everybody knows the right answer. And what we're trying to do is get, get it to the point where when a driver goes in, he can answer the questions truthfully that are asked, get a good treatment, and get a good outcome that works for him and works for the carrier and works for everybody. Unfortunately, the way it's been done of recent, it has not happened. And I'll have to, I could talk about this for an hour, and so I'll have to let somebody else share. Okay, Gary, um, I'm, you've got me kind of curious now. What about you, Elaine? <laughs> but I've got uh, well, some, uh... <laughs> I, I know what he's talking about because it's true. But the history and physical are two different things. So you can lie about things. You can say, no, I don't snore. No, I don't take insulin. You know, all that kind of stuff on your history. But when the doctor does the physical, there are things he'll pick up on the physical. I personally would like to see blood tests done on physical exams. And that way you would pick up, you know, diabetes, a lot of stuff you would pick up if you had a blood test. But they don't do the blood test. They do do the urinalysis, and urinalysis picks up things. They'll pick up sugar in the urine. Um, And... When they do the physical exam, it's not just snoring. You can't hide the fact that you weigh 350 pounds. You can't hide the fact that your neck circumference is 30 
too. So, you know, there are certain physical things that come up when the physician is or the nurse practitioner or whatever is doing the uh, physical right. exam. So it's a history and a physical, not just the history. Okay. Well, um, okay, I'm going to try to get to the this other bunch of callers here. I'm trying to remember who was next. Um, I think I think six or seven next. Uh, okay, Gary, thanks for calling. Um, I'm going to close your line. Okay. Uh, area code six o seven. Good evening, six o seven. Who do we have here? Hello, Donna and Elaine. It's Tom. How are you doing today? Good. Hey, Tom. How are you? I'm doing quite well, thank you. How are you? You and Elaine doing, Donna? Oh, I think we're I'm having good. a great show, Elaine. <laughs> uh, I, I've got several issues, and hopefully, your questions. Hopefully, I can remember all of them. Uh, We've covered so much there. You make a point in the lane, and I go, ooh, ooh. And unfortunately, I'm driving, so I couldn't write it down. But to follow up a little bit on what Gary was talking about, um, there are a lot of carriers who, when the the first rumors, for lack of a better term, of even that a regulation might be in the works, uh, opened up their own sleep, sleep labs. Many of these carriers pretty much force their drivers to go there. The driver's own insurance, in many cases, will not accept work with the carrier sleep labs. So these drivers are now having to pay X number of dollars a week out of their check for the sleep study. Um, In many cases, like you just said, Elaine, the, the company docs, the companies do have stricter standards, which if you can get through all of the political stuff and everything else, many times was not set up by the doctor, but by the company's lawyers because of, because of fear of lawsuits from uh, uh, the driver being in an accident. And you go through all of this stuff, and at the end of the day, it's the driver who's paying this, and, and in a way, it kind of brings back the old song, and I, and I owe my soul to the company's store. Um, but it, 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 it sort of is along those lines, and I think a lot of drivers may not be opposed to this, but it seems like, and it may not, I don't think it's intentional part, a part of the FMCSA, but it seems like some of the implementation has been very arbitrary uh, by some of the, particularly by some of the major carriers. And as a result, the drivers are confused. They're feeling exploited. Uh, and I think they have a right to. Um, and I think this is a case where a regulation probably was necessary, probably doesn't mean well, but it just wasn't implemented maybe as good as it could have been in certain aspects of it or in certain clarities, you know, making, making sure everybody understood what was going on. So as a result, you've got, uh, to quote Henry Albert, we're not, you know, you know when he talks about certain things, he keeps saying it would be nice if we're all on the same playing field. And it seems like right now 
we don't we don't even have a, a playing field, let alone a level playing field. Uh, so I hope that those comments made sense. I'll give you a little bit of chance to respond to that, Elaine. Go ahead, well, Elaine. All I can Thank say you. is, number one, I don't know anything about what a carriers are allowed or not allowed to do according to labor law. So if you have concerns about a carrier requiring somebody to go to their own sleep lab and then not having been able to cover up through insurance and then charging them, I think that's something that should, you should go to a labor Definitely. attorney and find out if an employer allowed to do this. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know whether they're allowed to do that or not. I know that they're allowed by FMCSA rules to have stricter requirements than we have. But number two, I agree, and I, I mentioned it in my opening comments, that one of the reasons everything is all over the place is because we, as FMCSA, was ready to write guidance, and Congress got involved and said you can't write guidance unless you write a rule on it first. Well, we had a rule on it, but they didn't consider that a rule. And had we been able to write guidance at that time, everybody would be on the same playing field. But we weren't allowed, and and because we weren't allowed, it's now all over the place. FMCSA has no guidance, except for that very generic statement that says if somebody, if you expect somebody has an OSA, send them to a specialist. So everybody's using these medical standards of practice. They're applying it different ways. Carriers are using it in different ways. Everybody is saying that it's an FMCSA regulation when it's not. Um, FMCSA tried in January to alleviate this with a bulletin to the medical examiners, but it wasn't any more, um, you know, you can do this, you can do that. It's not our requirement. We don't have guidance, you know, that type of thing. So, yes, I agree with you. It's a mess. It's a complete mess. And it is. And and one of the examples I'm thinking of, I want to say the one carrier sleep labs goes back almost six, if not eight years. A lot of it was just when the first rumblings or rumors, for lack of a better term, that the FMCSA was looking at the problem. I I may have my dates wrong. If I do, please forgive me, Elaine. But I think this was before the FMCSA put out any rule or guidance or anything official that some of these circumstances started. And there's also... In some of the sleep labs, uh, for example, a lot of drivers like myself who haul reefer, we cannot sleep without white noise in the background because uh, if I don't hear a reefer running in the background, I tend to wake up going, what's wrong? Uh, And I have heard some of the sleep labs will not allow uh, the drivers to bring in their own pillow, for example. They won't allow temperature adjustments, whatever the temperature of the room is, you're stuck with it. They won't allow any kind of white noise in the background. And I know there, there are some drivers who keep their trucks so cold, I swear you could hang meat in it of a night. It would come out frozen in the morning. Well, yeah, uh, but, you know, I can't do anything about that. And I actually I, I hear the complaints, but, you know, there are home studies now that are available too. And um, I think those complaints are something that you may want to uh, address in, I don't know, in, in other ways, but we can't. And it's not part of the FMCSA rulemaking. Um, which FMCSA I understand, and I think some of it also gets back to the issue, too, where some carriers, and once again, I have not had personal experience, but this is, this is anecdotal, 
where they're basically being told, you must use our approved set of sleep labs, and they're not accepting the home setting. Once again, I don't want to say that's true, but, uh, you know, that that is what I'm hearing from various drivers. Okay. That's a good thing. Uh, this sounds like a great show. We need to have an employment lawyer on. And, uh, yeah, and I would. I do have one more quick question for you, for you, Elaine, and this is actually something I've been meaning to call you about anyways. Uh, in some of the trucking media recently, it has been published that, I think it was about two weeks ago, one of the major California studies um, had universities have published a study that basically said it was the death net of the BMI because they were saying it had nothing to do with fitness. And I know a lot of trucking media people were going, oh, see, you know, this means that the whole using BMI for sleep apnea uh, shouldn't be used. And, and if I understood something you, you're saying correctly, I actually think it's two different things. One has to do more with your general physical fitness or condition, which I think is what that study was saying, where BMI for sleep apnea is a different measure, or is measuring something a little bit differently. Is, is that a correct interpretation, or I'm way off in left field? I'm not sure what the first study you're talking about is, but body mass index is also something that's been very confusing for people. Body mass index, I don't know if you remember way back when. I'm old enough to remember way back when they used the Metropolitan Life Insurance uh, chart to determine whether you were obese or not, and it said, oh, here you are, five foot two, and you weigh this much. That means you're obese, da-da-da-da-da. What they did to do BMI was they took the height and the weight and they mushed them together and they said, here's what a BMI would be. And they use that number now to determine whether or not you're obese, you're normal, you're underweight, you know, whatever the, the issues are. But it, body mass index is nothing more than height and weight um, measurements. And so the height versus and the weight, it, it's disproportionate. Will make you either too skinny, um, you know, underweight, overweight, obese. They have those various um, levels, and it's just it's an easy way for the medical community and everybody who talks about height and weight to sort of label what it means. Otherwise, it was just looking at the Metropolitan Life Chart and going down. Now they have come up with this BMI number. So the BMI number says whether or not you are um, obese, overweight, normal, underweight. Now, BMI, if you are really, like you were saying, really physically fit and you had a lot of muscle mass, say there are some of these I don't know what they call them, those people who do, you know, show their muscles, they curl, they have no fat, so you can see all the levels of their, their muscles when they do their bodybuilding stuff. Um, those people may have height, weight, a BMI of, say, 30, 32, and not really be obese. They are just heavy because of their muscles. Mm-hmm. That is not the normal, usual, general situation. Um, particular for people who are in sedentary occupations. It's not likely that somebody who is in a sedentary occupation and is not exercising regularly is going to fall into a category of being muscular rather than obese. 
Right. And if they right. do, I wish I had those genetics. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right, uh, Tom, but, did you but, have but anything that else? That does help quite a bit, Elaine. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. I'm going to get a couple of more callers. Um, Tom, did that take care of your question? I'm sure there was something that I've forgotten, but I have Elaine's email, so worst case scenario, I can always email Elaine. Okay. All right, I'm going to take a couple more callers and then go to a commercial break. So I'm going to take first area code 630 and then area code 812, and then we'll take a break and we'll come back. So uh, area code 630, who do we have on the line tonight? Hi, it's Bob Stanton. Hey, Bob, how are you? I just wanted to thank Elaine for such a wonderful job explaining the history of this entire process and problem. Really? Oh, right. thank you, Bob. <laughs> yeah, the, that, I appreciate the, it, too. Echoing what Elaine's been saying, it's going to be so important for any driver who, and excuse my French, thinks they've been screwed over on sleep apnea to take the time to write comments explaining the details of their story and situation. If you're not comfortable doing that, ATRI, the American Transportation Research Institute, is going to be doing surveys trying to collect information about many of the questions posed in the ANPRM. So watch for upcoming publicity from ATRI. I just talked to Rebecca Brewster at ATRI before the show confirming, but they're looking at several surveys trying to help drivers get information in on this. Oh, excellent. The other one, Elaine talked a little bit about BMI as a screening. One of the problems in the research studies is it costs a lot of money to test everybody in a research study for sleep apnea. So most of the studies that have been done on drivers have only tested those that screened high risk. We really don't have good data on how many people with low BMIs have sleep apnea. Some unpublished data from Schneider National's program all the way back in 2008 found that 30% of the people they tested and found had sleep apnea had a body mass index below 30. And wow. later recommendations were 35. And the, it's a research problem is no one's been able to afford doing a large-scale study that tested everybody in the study to see whether or not they had it. There was a small study done by the University of Pennsylvania with only 100 drivers, but 90% of those drivers had sleep apnea because it wasn't a random sample. Most of the drivers that enrolled in the study probably thought they had sleep apnea and enrolled in the study to get the free test. So it really there was a, not, it, there was a small study, Bob. There was a very small study done. It was published on the FMCSA website 
Um, it was one of our studies that we uh, did a uh, research grant to, um, I think it was less than 100, but a medical examiner tested every driver who came into his um, into his office who had a BMI of 33 or 35, I'm not sure which. Well, there's a couple of there's, there's actually, yeah, again, there's so much research. Digging yeah, through it can be, yeah. Let me finish. And Sorry. he found that every single person that he tested that was 35 or above had sleep apnea. So the thing is you need to go down lower than 35. Yes. Because 35. I'm saying, I'm, saying the, I'm saying the exact same thing. We, and we, what we don't know is how low do you need to go. Exactly. And so it's, but you, you know, I'm you can sorry. tell. I mean, what the reason I went to my doctor was because I was having excessive daytime sleepiness. I was sleepy all the time. It didn't make sense. So I went to him, and I do have it. So I don't know. I, I go to see him again next week to find out what he's going to do about it. But he said he was going to, wasn't going to give me a CPAP. So and I'm again, just curious. That's on on that um, ME that did all the testing, I'm I'm I'm. Um, surmising that he he just did it for his own research and he didn't charge people. Oh, you mean the doctor that I know that did it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He he he. Okay. He paid for their studies, right? Okay. Well, I was just curious. Okay. Um. And again, uh, Gary Gary raised uh, an issue. Truckers for a Cause, we regularly hear from drivers that had been tested by one testing facility and told they had sleep apnea and had to go on a CPAP, who got a second medical opinion from a different sleep specialist who disagreed. Um, It's a common problem, and drivers that have been through that need to spend the time to write comments telling their story because those kinds of problems are not going to come out from the medical community in their comments where you get differing medical opinions. Right. So you're saying you're saying then that that the company sleep uh person because I think um Elaine and I have spoken to somebody with a very similar problem with this. Um they take the test from the company, it comes out positive. The driver then goes to their own uh, physician. They do the study. It comes out negative, and they won't accept the results. Is that what you're saying? I, I, okay. I'm. Elaine will understand. HIPAA prevents talking about certain kinds of things, but yes, what you, the, the story you just painted is a story I hear on a regular basis. Whether it okay. was a company-sponsored program. A private or a private doctor varies on the patients I've dealt with, but there are okay. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine is the standard-setting medical group for sleep medicine. They do have recommended clinical practice parameters, and some of the cases I've seen were not consistent with the AASM clinical practice parameters. And those are the kinds of stories drivers need to tell in comments to FMCSA on this. Okay, yes, excellent. But now, let me say what I think the driver should 
in comments because one of the things that is going to take and just sort of discard their comment is if they write nasty grams. Yes. I hate the FMCSA. What you guys are doing is stupid. If they use foul language, um, this this is not the place for that. The place to have your voice heard is by writing a nice professional letter that says, I have had the following problem. You need to know about this when you're considering doing a rulemaking. Yes, And this please. is what has happened to me. And it's just, it's not the doctor was a jerk or any of that kind of emotional stuff. It's just the facts. They need the facts. They need to know, I went to the doctor. He sent me to his own laboratory that he owned. He refused to accept any other results. He then said I needed a CPAP. He sent me to a company that he owned to get a CPAP. Later, I went to my private physician. He did the test. He said, I don't have sleep apnea, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, just the facts, but not all this stuff that people get when they get so emotional, they want to write these nasty grams that are not helpful to the agency. They're not helpful to the driver. It doesn't do, it may, you could write a nasty gram and then burn the letter or mail it to some, you know, address that doesn't exist just to get it off your chest. But don't send something like that to the agency because it isn't going to be helpful to them and it's not going to be helpful to you. They're not going to want to use any of the information in it because they're going to say this is coming from somebody who's like crazy. You know, you just don't write stuff like that in this kind of a situation. Does that make sense? And Donna, the uh, Truckers for a Cause, we did a show similar to yours where John Hill, the former administrator of FMCSA, and Joe Rockovitz talked about how the best ways are to write comments to FMCSA on rulemakings. So that's a resource right. drivers could listen to that call to hear from an FMC, a former FMCSA administrator and a professional lobbyist for the trucking industry on how individual drivers can be more effective in writing their comments is exactly what Elaine's saying. You've, you've got to do the facts and do it professionally and without emotion. And, and absolutely. And you know what? Sometimes it's good if you just read a few of those comments uh, that are already up there. I, I took a look today, and it looks like there's already 85 comments on there. So I think there's going to be quite a few. Um, and just get an idea also uh, to get a feel for it. Make sure you put the docket number down, um, uh, things like that. So um, if you want to post that link to that recording on our show page under comments, uh, feel free, Bob, uh, and just I, say. To be honest, you know, I'm buried in email stuff right now. But it's it's you know, if they go to Truckers for a Cause and look through the the conference call archives, it'll show up. Um, okay. But and the other one too is don't be afraid to draft your comments and ask somebody else to look at them. Um, right. Something we did during the hours of service was we set up a method for driver drivers to get. We actually got professional writers from the trucking press 
that volunteered their time to help with spelling and grammar because they can't, you know, the, a, a reporter doesn't make the news. They only report about it, so it's not appropriate for them to comment, but many of them had personal opinions, so they were glad to help drivers be more professional in how they wrote their comments. Right, right. Well, even even us over here, um, Alan will write something, I read it, and yep. I look over it, then I give it back to him. I usually give him the last, the last say on it. And but that's how we do it here because I mean you you want it to be professional and you don't want to miss anything and there's always something maybe that you forgot that's very important and that the next person can bring up. So these are very important things because once this rule is made, you know, it, you you can't well, again, look back well, then. Elaine Elaine covered this well. This is not the rule. They're asking questions that will help them form the rule. So we need to give them the best information we can to help them craft a rule. So let me go over real quick. The ANPRM, the Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, which is the one that's out now that is asking all the questions, all the information comes in, and then the agencies start culling through it, and they start studying it, and then they start writing the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. There are hoops all sorts of hoops they have to go through with the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. One of those hoops is to go through the Office of Management and Budget has to approve it. The Office of Management and Budget is an arm of the White House. There's going to be a change in the administration in January. So the Office of Management and Budget is going to change. What happens, uh, you know, some of the things in the Office of Management and Budget will change because the Office of Management and Budget has to make sure that whatever comes out of the executive branch, all the agencies, every single agency, Defense Department, every agency is part of the executive branch. So the executive branch of the government has to reflect the president's policies, ideas, and so forth. So the Office of Management and Budget has to approve whatever the notice of proposed rulemaking is before it goes out. So they go through everybody under the sun to get approval, and then it gets published. I would suspect that the notice of proposed rulemaking, after this ANPRM comes, it closes in 90 days, it's going to take a good two years before they pull all of that together and publish a notice of proposed rulemaking, at least. Mm-hmm. And then after that two-year period, the notice of proposed rulemaking gets published, you have another opportunity to comment because that's the one that says, here's what we're going to say in a rule. So you have a whole other opportunity of public comment, and that's really important stuff because if you don't comment then, it goes in and becomes rule, and you're dead in the water because it's not going to change whatever. If you want comments and you don't like something they said – you should comment on good things and things that you think need to change, and you should make the whatever you're commenting, you should have some valid reasons for it. A lot of data usually helps. But then the notice of proposed rulemaking, that'll take at least two years, too, before it becomes final. So this isn't going to become a rule for, I'd say, minimum four years, probably more like six. Wow. 
Okay. No, I agree. Especially with uh. the change in administration. Yeah. So. It, and Donna, another another topic where drivers have been upset about a sleep apnea rule was concerns over research showing the sleep apnea crash risk in commercial drivers in the U.S. And there was just a study that came out Monday of this week that is really going to be a, yep, that's yes. a game changer. That so that's, that many the objections drivers have had on that research question, and one of the first shows I ever called in with you was about that lack of research. That has really changed. Yeah, this had sixteen hundred and some odd drivers in it, and it showed just just briefly. Um, it showed that you. People diagnosed with um, obstructive sleep apnea and who use a CPAP machine, and if they don't use the machine, they're five times more likely to have a crash, and that was uh, compared to those, the control group uh, who didn't have sleep apnea uh, and also uh, compared with those with sleep apnea who use their machine. So I did find those. Mm -hmm. What's even more striking about the study is that they analyzed the crashes for preventable versus non-preventable. So basically accidents in the study where it obviously wasn't the driver's fault. Um, So even with that analysis, it still showed a, a large increase in crash. And the lead author of the study is a former truck driver. So these are people right. who really knew their stuff that were looking at this question. And it's, it's research that goes back to the very early days of the Schneider National Program. Now, I can't ethically know whether or not I was in the study, but I was probably one of the drivers in that study. So it's, to me, it's very striking information. Yes, I thought it was striking, too, and I appreciate you sending that uh, link on over. I think, Elaine, you got that also. Yeah, um, I did. I haven't read it yet. Also. Been it, it, it's, it's, very, it's, a, it's a good article. Uh, Bob, I'll, I'll, I can leave your line open here, but I want to get to area code 812 before we take a break. They've been holding on a long time. Um, area code 812, who do we have here? Oh, it's Carla. Ow. <laughs> hey. There. hey. Hey Carla. How are you? Yeah. I'm okay. Is that you? All the, you must be doing something over there. No, I ain't got nothing but a book in my hand. I'm taking notes. Oh, okay. Maybe it's Bob. Let me put him on mute. There was a lot of noise. It sounds like a fact. That's not sort of sounds. But anyway, I don't. It doesn't matter. I just uh, wanted to clarify some things that I'm listening to. Go ahead. You were talking about those questions. Uh, I think it's a week ago that your husband put it out on his uh, Facebook page, and I reviewed that link, and I came up with 20 questions. I thought someone said there was like 40. Um, some of them are pretty uh, specific on morning stats, like certain percentage, whatever. Are we required to answer those questions, or is that specific for certain individuals, like in the medical field or transportation carriers or 
Uh, I'll, I'll answer that. No, you're not required to answer. There are 20 questions, and I said 20, so I'm not sure where you heard more than that, but there are 20 questions. And the 20 questions are the questions that the agency is posing to the public that they want information on. You don't have to answer any of them. You can just write in an anecdote telling them what happened to you. Um, you can answer whatever questions you know answers to or have information about. But it's not a, if you write a comment, you have to answer every single question. You write what you want to write in, in response to a, a question, some questions, or you just put in anecdotal information. But you need to okay. give them information that will help them in determining whether to write a rule or not. Okay. There was mention that uh, under the FMCSA, it does allow carriers to be more stricter. Is that under the uh, 29 CFR 395 point? Where would we find that? Uh, it's in, the, I don't know the regulation number right off the top of my head, but I can uh, find it and give it to Donna to post on her website. Okay. okay. That said, that actually says they can be stricter? Uh-huh. Okay. I didn't even know it said that they could. <laughs> well, I got well, I got that. I guess my my last thing was uh, the gentleman before mentioned Rebecca, and I didn't catch the last name. Um, can that be repeated? The one that I guess is going to be working with the survey that the ATI is going to be collecting information here in the future sometime. Oh, I think Bob. Hold on, I'm, let me open Bob's uh, line up again. Hey, Bob, did you hear that question? Yes, Rebecca Brewster, B-R-E-W-S-T-E-R. She is with the American Transportation Research Institute, ATRI. Okay. Institute, okay. A-T-R-I is how they're normally called, ATRI. And you'll be posting that information on your truckers for a cause? Yes, and we'll also make sure Donna gets it, and I'll be putting it in various Facebook pages that I participate. We'll push it out as best we can. <laughs> okay, now it's okay. for a cause. Is that the number four or is that FOR? FOR. Sorry. Okay. All right. Everything else has already been mentioned, what I wanted to say from Gary to Bob, so I'm not going to repeat anything. So I, I'm just asking the things that I wanted to clarify that had not been mentioned or had been mentioned and I may not got correctly so I could get my notes straightened out. So, um, well, I'm glad you. we uh, it went over everything for you, Carla. I know you had a lot of questions, and, um, you know, that's a, that's a good sign that if, if you, you must have gotten a lot out of the show tonight. Well, I think I did. Um, I just, uh, when she was, well, it, I'm not going to get into it because uh, there's other people waiting. Uh, if I have any other questions, I'll just uh, send an email to you. Okay, sounds great. Well, thanks for calling. Um, actually, I'm going to take a, a, a quick break, and we'll be right back. Heads up, truckers. 
Are you looking for deals on trucks, trailers, parts, or equipment? Or maybe you need to sell something truck-related. Well, there's a great spot on the web where truckers deal with other truckers. No middlemen involved. That's why we call it TruckerToTrucker.com. There's no charge at all for looking. And if you want to place an ad for what you're selling, it's just $19.95. And it runs till it sells. So whether you're buying or selling, it's time to log on and take a look. TruckerToTrucker.com. Check it out. That's TruckerToTrucker.com. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here, and I want to tell you about TruckerLawyers.com. TruckerLawyers.com helps drivers with their legal needs, and they specialize in workers' compensation, trucking accidents, employment law, and other areas. TruckerLawyers.com arms you with important information regarding workers' compensation and your legal rights, and they are also available to help you find assistance for additional legal issues. This includes determining how to get you the best benefits possible for your situation. The website TruckerLawyers.com is a resource where you can learn more about your legal rights as a driver. Feel free to continue the social media conversation by liking them on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash TruckerLawyers and follow them on Twitter as at TruckerLawyers. Call them to talk through your questions at 1-800-736-5503. Well, welcome back, everybody. Um, we're talking tonight about the driver fatigue, what you need to know about FMCSA rulemaking for sleep apnea. And uh, our guest tonight is Elaine Papp uh, from healthandsafetyworks.net. And, uh, Elaine, you're, you're just an angel here tonight, sticking on for so long and answering and explaining so many questions. I, I did want to uh, bring up some, some people um, that we've been talking with them for just about almost a year, uh, you know, about uh, sleep apnea and products and, you know, integrity and all things like that. And um, and they've actually uh, joined with us, uh, CPAP America, and, and we really are thrilled to announce that, you know, we do have uh, a joint uh, relationship with them to try to get their um, testing products and things out there. They are so knowledgeable, and and we, Alan and I, were so impressed with the dedication they have um, towards the professional drivers, including answering questions, providing uh, the quality and affordable testing. So they're actually going to be on a show with us uh, pretty soon, and uh, they they really do take what could I call it the the fear out of, you know, sleep apnea, the cost, and like that. So anyway, um, a little bit about them. Owner um, Ed Frost is a registered respiratory therapist for over 20 years, and uh, he's also managed 27 sleep labs and currently sits on the New Jersey State Board of Respiratory Care. So anyway, um, uh, if you if you are needing uh, a test or a product, you can... Uh, Go to CPAPAmerica.com. Their number is 800-569-0167. So I just wanted to uh, share that with everyone. Well, Elaine, um, uh, I I think I have a question I marked down. We we could have answered it uh, during the show, but let me just see. I was making notes all night. Um... 
bear with me. Bear with me. Okay, here we go. Um, oh, this is was one under one of your myths. Um, when a driver does he have to have a recording of uh, that provides a recording when they're using the device? To prove not according to FMCSA rules. We don't have any of that requirement. So it's not okay. an FMCSA rule to have a recording device. However, most medical examiners and most treating clinicians will want to know if a driver is um, using the medical device, the CPAP or whatever they're using, the BPAP. Right. Um, and so the only way they really have of knowing if they're using it, because lots of times people go and have a sleep study and get the CPAP, and then they don't like it and they can't use it. Um, so if they're not using it, they're not treated. So they'll want to know that, so they'll ask for that recording. But that's not a re- FMCSA requirement. Okay. And but uh, it could again, be it's one of those myths that says, that it is an FMCSA requirement, and it's not. But that's okay. one of many. Okay, so when you go back for your uh, for your physical, though, um, they could require that to get, give you your card just to make sure that you were doing it. Is that what you're saying? They could require that. They could require you. Um, they shouldn't, but they could require you to have a, another phys, another sleep study done, and that's really ridiculous. Um, so it's probably a good idea. I mean, this is the kind of thing that helps people to know ahead of time. If a truck driver knows that he's going to need to provide his medical examiner with verification that he has used that machine, then he may want to talk to his uh, private provider and say, you know, I need the kind of machine. And I think most of the machines today are made with, devices in them that record. There are old ones that people have that they've been using for a long time that don't have that in it, and so those will probably not have it, and they'll have to figure out how are they going to give their medical examiner the information that that person is going to need, and how did they do it the last time? Because if their device is so old Mm -hmm. that they don't have a recorder in it, then they'll probably have had to have had a medical exam and proved that they were using it before. You know what I'm saying? Is my line open? Yeah. Yeah. um, Hold on. Yes, it is. Okay. There actually hasn't been a CPAP machine even manufactured since 2005 that doesn't have data recorded. If someone is still on a machine that that's, that's that old, medically it probably should be replaced if you can't afford it. The American Sleep Apnea Association has a CPAP assistance program for people that need replacement CPAP machines that can't afford it. Um, they, for a very low donation just to cover shipping costs, they can help someone who can't afford a machine get a machine. Right. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, well, I have another question. So let's say you go to the medical examiner. You know, you've got a high BMA. You're overweight. 
uh, and they do the sleep study. Yes, indeed, you have sleep apnea. And you decide, you know what, I want to change my life. Uh, start eating healthy, you lose weight, you're, you're, now you're into all this health and fitness and you've totally changed your, turned your life around. You've lost, you know, 50, 100, 150, whatever, okay? And you decide mm-hmm. you want to have another sleep test. And sure enough, it comes out normal. Mm-hmm. Now, are you branded for life as, uh, with sleep apnea or can that change? No, that can change. Okay, so you could bring your test results into the ME, tell them what happened. And, yeah, and you uh, won't have the same BMI and the same neck circumference anyhow. Okay. And you may not snore anymore either. Okay, well, let then me again, ask maybe you, supposing you, do, supposing you don't do anything. Supposing you're still big and you're still, but you had another test done and it came back normal. Now, would they still accept that or would that raise an eyebrow? I would suspect it might raise an eyebrow because you have one test that shows this and another test that shows right. that. And you may have to have a – I sincerely doubt that if you okay. haven't done anything that you're going to have a change right. in your – I mean, right. one of them is obviously wrong. So the point I'm making is it's a whole picture. It's not just the test. Right. Okay. Uh, Donna? Donna, our experience with drivers has been if they've gotten a test which was negative, the first question the medical examiner often asks, was it a home sleep study or an in-lab, more expensive study? Because the lab studies are more accurate. The second thing they want to look at is to compare, have your risk factors changed since the first study was done? Oftentimes, if you've been screened high risk once in your life, you will most likely in some fashion have to address it at every medical exam from then forward because it's even losing weight is only one of several risk factors. They probably suggested a, a sleep study based on several things. Except that, Bob, the medical examiner that you go to, unless you go to that same exact medical examiner year after year after year after year, medical examiners do not have access to the previous medical examination report form. The only thing they have access to is the medical card. Mm-hmm. So they will on the, not on the know sense, whether though, a, The driver will, has to report their entire medical history. Any time, you know, that, that's part of what you've got to report in filling right. out well, the medical do. history. Right. So, again, our experience with drivers, once they've had to be tested once, our advice to them is to always bring a copy of that test with them for future But were they tested DOD and they were negative? Yes. And many and then times. they would not it, check the box that said that they had obstructive sleep apnea. But usually, even if they've lost weight, they will still show other risk factors so that they often will be recommended. Just because they lost weight, they still may have other risk factors. So the yeah, advice it is always... it depends always on the risk factors. It doesn't depend on correct. their having been labeled from the past. It depends right. on what are my risk factors today when I see this medical examiner face-to-face because in my history, I only have to report in my history um, those 
conditions that I have been diagnosed with in the in my lifetime. And if I was not diagnosed, which means I might have had risk factors, but the test is a diagnostic tool. So if you're not diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea, you don't have to write that in your history. You may still have risk factors. They may ask you to have another sleep study done, but you will yep. not be labeled because of having had it one one point before. Nobody has access to your previous records. Well, again, they, we regularly get calls from drivers that have a negative sleep study that are dealing with being told they're going to need a new sleep study. That's part of what we want drivers to tell in comments, and it's just advice that, you know, it, it, it tends to happen. Because usually it's not just one a, – a medical examiner rarely requires a sleep study just because of body mass index. Usually there's many other things involved. Well, we're right. I've been saying that the whole time yep. I've been talking. And, and I agree. <laughs> Well, um, but Don, Donna's, 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 Donna's scenario, though, of losing weight and getting healthy um, may not be – you're still going to still – even if you've lost weight, you're still going to have many other factors that may be showing you risky for sleep apnea. Remember we talked about not every – you know, people with body mass indexes below 30 still often have it. Right, but I mean, yeah. if you walk in and you had another sleep test done and it's negative, and then you walk in, you know, you look like, um, you know, the Hulk, and I think, I think, you know, they might go, oh, okay, that's okay. You know, I, I doubt they make you. Uh, yeah, and it all depends on the. Yep. Yeah. So Donna, um, um, my dog is starting to tell me that she needs to go out for a walk. Okay. Well, we appreciate you staying this long, Elaine. Um, I really do. I'm going to leave. Um, you know what I'm going to do? Well, I've got, oh, my goodness, only got seven minutes left, and I've got a, a few announcements. But we do appreciate you coming on, everybody. Don't we appreciate it? take the dog out um if people need to reach you um over at health and safety net, um do you you have any info you can give out for them yeah it's the website is health and safety works all one word dot net and the email address is health and safety works at gmail health and safety works one five at gmail dot com Okay, okay. And there is uh, again. a um, phone number also on the um, website, but it's a number that I don't, I mean, it's not like right near me at all times, and so they may have to leave a message that I may not get back to them right away. Well, again, on the show page description um, of our show, which is posted all over uh, social media, um it's right. Her website's right in that uh, description. So uh, again, thanks again, uh, <clears throat> Elaine, and I'll talk to you You're soon. Okay, thank, thank you. you very much for the opportunity. It was great to talk to you guys. Nice to talk to you too, Bob. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. 
Um, I just want to make an announcement to um, to everybody, and, and I hope you all uh, take part in this. It's it's our trucking social media driver uh, advocacy contest, and you know everybody's got um, you know a lot of concerns about the in, uh, the industry, uh, whether whether it be health issues like like what we're talking about tonight. Uh, or whether it be, you know, truck driver image, regulations, um, um, whatever. I mean, there's a whole list of things that people are very concerned about the industry. So, you know, in order to, to have your voice heard, a lot of people don't like to write, but they like to do videos. They have A lot of people have YouTube channels, and they like to upload their video to, to YouTube and to discuss um, their ideas or how they feel about certain issues, either uh, it be with the FMCSA or, or about driver image or health or some of the other things that I, I just spoke about. And there's a slew of issues in the industry. Um, uh, but anyway, it's going to be a contest to get people's voices heard, bring, kind of bring people together on the page on trucking social media with their videos, and then have a contest and uh, and put these videos out on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you want to post these videos. You just take the link. And uh, we're going to have a contest. First prize is going to be sponsored by Zyper.com uh, for $250. Uh, we'll have a second place of $150 and a third place of $100. And the, the, the way you win is there's a little thumbs up on the video at Trucking Social Media, so we're just—it's an easy. All we have to do is see who has uh, has the most thumbs up. The nice thing about this is, you know, uh, the the website will detect your IP address, so you, you can't like go in there and and click a thousand times the thumb. It's going to be really, I think, a a truer count of the thumbs up. Now you can share the link and give it to your friends and say, hey, can you, can you give me a thumbs up? Can you look at this? And, and that will be allowed, but you, know, you yourself are not going to be able to vote over and over and over again, which I think is, is fair. Um, just go to truckingsocialmedia.com. There's a little Submit Your U, uh, YouTube Video or Submit button in the upper right-hand corner. Just put in your YouTube URL, or if you're not comfortable with that, just send your YouTube uh, video URL to uh, info at truthabouttrucking.com, uh, subject line TSM contest. But actually, I think it's easier just to go to truckingsocialmedia.com, and uh, there's actually on the menu button where it says contest, and you can read all about the contest and uh uh, you know how to submit. It's pretty easy, and and I think it's a good way for people to have their voices heard. So, uh, you know, we're looking forward to that. And just a little bit about one of our sponsors, who's um, who's sponsoring that big two hundred and fifty dollar first place prize. That's Zyper.com. It's a it's a revolutionary app. Um, it's it's a tremendous app that detects where you are, if you're empty, the type of truck you have, a whole list of criteria in order to match you with the best and most profitable load. So this is really for owner-operators, this app. Um, you, you need to, to go to Zyper.com or, or just download Zyper, either Android or iPhone, download it. And actually, if you download it, you're automatically entered in a dash cam uh, giveaway. 
So go ahead and, and download Viper. It's X-Y-P-P-E-R uh, to your phone. Be entered in the contest and then start using this to have loads sent right to you. And you can watch the video on their website, uh, Zyper.com, X-Y-P-P-E-R, and it will better explain this app. And, uh, I mean, once you see it, you're going to see uh, the benefits. Uh, not only that, but they're um, committed to having honest and transparent people brought on so you never have to worry about not getting paid. Uh, all the paperwork is uh, is completed for you and uh, high work ethics and integrity. And, of course, everybody who knows us knows that those are the type of people we associate with so you feel confident that anybody we bring on uh, with us is going to uh, be reputable. Well, I think we're out of time, guys. I, boy, I brought that right down to the wire. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for um, coming on board with us tonight and listening. And You've been listening to Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith. On behalf of Alan and Donna Smith, AskTheTrucker.com, TruckingSocialMedia.com, NorthAmericanTruckingAlerts.com, Blog Talk Radio, and Ask the Trucker Live. I'm J. Michael Collins. Until next time, drive safe and thanks for listening. Thanks so much, everybody. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.